Amen, amen, amen. He is risen indeed. Praise God for Easter Sunday. And every Easter, what I praise God for the most is that this isn't the first time we've heard this news. It didn't just happen today. Or even worse, we aren't looking forward to a Messiah who is yet to come, who is yet to die for our sins, who is yet to raise from the dead. We have the fortune. We have the blessing of looking at the cross and the resurrection with hindsight. Amen? We have the fortune and blessing of being on this side of the cross where grace and mercy are available through faith, where the Lamb of God came, whose blood was shed once and for all, and there is now no need for the shedding of blood for the remission of sins because his blood, the Lamb of God, the Son of God was crucified for you, for me. Do you feel that? Do you believe that this morning? That he did it for you? You know, in the English language, you can be singular and you can be plural. And yes, he did it for you all. But more significantly, he did it for you, for you. For you, individually, every single one of you can benefit from, can feel the blessings of for now and for all eternity, the death and resurrection of God in flesh. I've entitled my message, Easter, Fool's Day, or the Faithful's Declaration. Now, obviously, we all know what today is. Other than Easter, what is today? April Fool's, that's right. One of the ideas that the elders threw around was announcing a big breakfast. And then when you, and and say the church would provide all the food, just come. And then when you got here, say, April Fool's, go to Sunday school now. Probably be the best Sunday school attendance we've ever had. (laughs) And the last time you ever come to Covenant. (laughs) But it is, it's April Fool's, a day that we celebrate lying to people. Is that a little bit odd? No, it's it's fun, right? Fooling people, playing jokes. But there's, there's no joke when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, that it says, basically, if we have no hope in Christ, if he has not been raised, then we of all people are to be pitied. And we could, in, we could put another word in there if, if God might give me the liberty to do so. If Christ has not been raised, then we of all people are fools, to believe this nonsense that God took on flesh, that there's a God at all to start with, but then if there is, that this God came down to us, took on flesh, and died, because how in the world can God die? That's ridiculous. And then that this God-man, so to speak, after three days in the grave, 
Body dead, heart stopped, brain waves no more, came back to life. Travis, I'm going to put you on the spot here. You're a doctor. Or that's what your degree says. (laughs) No, you're a very good doctor. Do people come back to life after three days of being really dead? No, that doesn't happen, does it? I mean, I'm sure there are medical instances where people have been dead for a few minutes, maybe even a few hours, and they came back to life. And that may be pushing it. But three days doesn't happen. And so if this isn't true, what fools we are. This should be our day. It's so fitting that Easter would fall on April Fool's Day if this is not true because we are fools. An article uh, last year came out. I always like to look at articles after Easter because all the, after major holidays because all these articles come out and I can use them next year for illustrations. And so last year on April 15th, a few days after Easter, the New York Times printed an article by Nicholas Kristof, who's a well-known columnist for the New York Times. And, and he was doing this series called Am I a Christian? And, and he was speaking to well-known, popular um, Christians, believers, or at least those who call themselves Christians, getting their take on this question. What do I have to believe to be a Christian? And this article that came out on April 15th was actually an interview, a discussion between Nicholas Kristof and President Jimmy Carter. President Jimmy Carter, who you may know as the most famous Sunday school teacher in the world. That's what he was known as when he was in president and when he was president and after that. Um, president Carter has also been very public about his uh, Protestant liberal views. So we wouldn't say that he's evangelical, but he does call himself a Christian. And I'm not questioning that he is or isn't. That's, that's not my point today. Please hear me. But in this article, Nicholas Kristof asked a couple of questions, and I just want to read to you a few of those questions and and then President Carter's responses. So Nicholas Kristof asked, what about someone like me whose faith is in the Sermon on the Mount, who aspires to follow Jesus' teachings, but is skeptical that he was born of a virgin, walked on water, multiplied loaves and fishes, or had a physical resurrection, the, the miracles? Am I a Christian? And so President Carter responded, I do not judge whether someone else is a Christian. Jesus says, judge not. I I try to apply the teachings of Jesus in my own life, often without success. And then Christoph said, well, one of my problems with evangelicalism is that it normally argues that one can be saved only through a personal relationship with Jesus, which seems to consign Gandhi to hell. Do you believe that? President Carter said, I do not feel qualified to make a judgment. I am inclined to give him or others the benefit of any doubt. Now, I don't judge the eternal destiny of anyone because what I think about it or what I think about that particular person really doesn't matter at all eternally. But what does matter is what the Bible says. And the scripture gives a very clear testimony to the fact that there is an eternal difference between those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and those who do not. 
And the Bible doesn't leave uh, an open question there. So, for example, in Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's the resurrection, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that one believes and is justified and with the mouth that one confesses and is saved. Believes what? Believes what? What what belief is necessary for salvation? Well, Paul tells us explicitly, believe in your heart that God raised him, Jesus, from the dead. My friends, it it is absolutely necessary to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ to be saved. Uh, a few months before, several months before, Nicholas Kristof interviewed President Jimmy Carter. He interviewed Tim Keller, who's a, a famous Presbyterian evangelical pastor in New York City. And he asked the same questions. Is it necessary for me to believe in the resurrection to be a Christian? Am I saved? And this was Tim Keller's answer. Yes, by the standards of historic Christianity, that answer has to be yes. And then Christoph also pressed him on the exclusivity of the gospel. And Keller answered this, that the Bible knows no salvation except that which comes by the conscious confession of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And I would add the word living Savior and Lord. Tim Keller is absolutely right. According to the Bible, the word of God, and according to historic Orthodox Christianity, belief in the bodily death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely necessary for salvation. So let's get into the word. Let's not waste any more time with this opening. I just wanted to make that point. Are we fools or are we the faithful? That's the question before us today on this Easter of all Easter's as Easter falls on April 1st. Are we fools Or are we the faithful? Is Easter Fool's Day or is it the faithful's declaration? What if Jesus didn't rise? What if there was no resurrection from the dead? What would be the implications for us as Christians? Well, I want to look at Paul's answer to that question in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 9. So if you would turn there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 9. And when you've turned there, if you are able, would you stand with me in honor of God's word? And if you are not able this morning, I know that you're standing in your heart in honor of our Savior. And I say turn in your Bible, or I should also say turn on your Bible for those who use digital devices, which is completely fine by me. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And so the Corinthians are dealing with the issue of, yeah, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but we don't necessarily believe that people will raise from the dead. And so I think the, the issue for them is opposite of what it is for us today because now in, in, in 21st century America, everybody goes to heaven, Right? I mean, I mean, everybody goes to heaven. Everybody raises from the dead. I mean, really, it used to be you had to be a good person to go to heaven. I've said this before. I know people are like, we've heard you say that before, Brian. It used to be if you were a good person, you went to heaven. But now the only prerequisite for going to heaven is being alive. If you are alive now or have been at some point, you will, when you die, go to heaven. Maybe people like Hitler, Stalin, they're questionable, but everyone else, obviously, goes to heaven. 
For them it was, Jesus raised, but I don't know if we raised. For us, in our culture, it's, of course we're going to raise, but I don't think Jesus rose from the dead. And, and Paul deals with both of those problems. Some of you say, how can, or how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, verse 13, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You may be seated. Oh God, I thank you that by the confidence of your word and by the evidences that exist, we are not fools for believing this. In fact, we are favored, we are faithful, and we have life because we do. And I pray that before this day is over, before this time is over, by the proclamation of the gospel, which is your power for salvation, oh God, if there's anyone in this room that does not now believe or is not sure that they believe that Jesus lives, that today would be the day that all of that changes and their life is transformed eternally. Oh God, by your grace and by your power, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen, amen. I want to give you four implications of Jesus' resurrection being a lie. If Jesus is not raised, then what? If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then, and this is the first implication. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then our message is fraudulent. Our message is fraudulent. Again, look at what Paul says. Your preaching is in vain in verse 14. What about 15? We are found to be misrepresenting God. Does that, does that make you shudder a little bit? Does that make your stomach turn if you think about misrepresenting God, saying God is something he's not, or saying he's done something that he has not done? We are misrepresenting God because we're testifying about God that he raised Christ when he didn't do it, if he did not. We're speaking on behalf of God, and what we speak is a lie if Jesus is not raised. Our message is fraudulent. If Christ didn't raise, then we are wasting our time and breath and leading others astray. Now, hear me from the very beginning. I do believe he raised. These are the counterfactuals. These are the what-ifs that I don't believe, the hypotheticals that are not hypothetical, that are not true. He did raise. He absolutely raised. It's why we stand here today. It's why we have hope. It's why we long for heaven. It's why we look to him. But for those who say he didn't, who, who, especially for those who say, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that he raised from the dead, their message is a fraud. They are fake whether they know it or not. How stupid of us if Jesus isn't raised to believe this nonsense. 
How cruel of us to make promises to others that can't be true if Jesus isn't alive. And, and, and me, of all people, who, who stands up here week after week, Sunday after stomach, su- Sunday, proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel, the good news of God, salvation through Christ and his cross and his resurrection. What a terrible and slimy person I am to continue to profess that if it is not true. Now, what I want to do at the very beginning is I just want to give you some quick evidences for the resurrection. I want us to be sure that it did happen. So the first evidence for the resurrection is the Old Testament prophecies. Long before Christ was born of the Virgin Mary on that first Christmas night, people proclaimed about his life, where he would be born, events that would occur in his life, and ultimately his death and resurrection. Let me just give you one, for example, Psalm 1610. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption, a direct prophecy of Christ's resurrection. God's word says the Messiah will not stay dead, abandon, let stay, or undergo decay. So that's the first evidence, the Old Testament prophecy, but that's not enough. By itself. Well, it is if you believe God's word to be God's word, but if you don't necessarily believe that, that's probably not enough for you. So let's move on to the empty guarded tomb. This guarded tomb by big bad Roman soldiers who were trained for war most of their life. They were good at what they did. And, and no podunk, puny, Fishermen were going to come and overpower these Roman soldiers who stood guard at Jesus' tomb. There was no other way out. There was one entrance and exit, and they stood in front of it. There's no way the disciples could have taken his body. And yet, the tomb was empty. There were eyewitnesses. There are accounts of that from Scripture, from the guards, from the from the religious leaders themselves. They had to spread this lie because they knew it was empty. They couldn't say, actually, come here, guys. See, he's right there. They had to come up with a lie to explain why there was no body in the tomb. What about the bribe given to the guards to lie? It's, it's interesting in Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15, the guards go back to the religious leaders and they say, um, yeah, he's gone. And they're like, okay, here's what we're going to do. Take some money. Because these Roman soldiers, if they failed in their task, they would be killed themselves. And and so the religious leader said, we'll cover for you. We'll, We'll cover for you with the governor. Here's some money. Tell everyone that the disciples came and stole his body. Now, if that's actually what happened... Excuse me, why did they bribe them and tell them to lie? Because they knew it was a lie. They knew that's not what had happened. So, what was their explanation? We don't get it in Scripture, but they knew that's not what happened. They had to bribe and ask them to lie because they knew exactly, or they knew that that did not occur. The bribe given to the guards. The missing body. There was no body. No one ever produced a body. You know they would have been looking everywhere, high and low, in every corner, looking for Jesus' body so they could produce the body to prove that he was still dead. And yet no body was ever produced. 
No evidence was ever given to the contrary that Jesus had risen from the dead. What about the unwrapped grave clothes in John 20, verses 6 and 7? Jesus was tightly wrapped in, in these, this linen cloth that they would have wrapped him in, these burial cloths with spices and everything they wrapped him with. And John specifically mentions that the wrap in the tomb had been undisturbed or unwrapped. Now, how in the world did Jesus get out? Or how did the disciples get the body out and leave the clothes there without unwrapping them? The, the answer is he rose. And what once had form, these clothes that had a body in it, the body just disappeared and they just depressed. But they were undisturbed, unwrapped. And then we have the eyewitness accounts. Here, right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if if we'll go back up to verses 3 through 8, Paul runs through all those who saw Christ after his resurrection who identified him with their eyes, people who knew Jesus, people who were still alive as Paul was writing this, that that they could go and, and, and corroborate his story. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, also in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared, and that's the other eleven, the full twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time at his ascension, most of whom are still alive. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. All these eyewitnesses. If I'm going to make up a hoax, I'm not going to tell people or encourage them to go ask others if it's true or not. Oh, don't worry about it. Just trust me. But Paul invites them and gives them names. Here's here's my reference. Call him. Check out my story, because it was real. It was legit. And then the conviction of the disciples to give up their lives in defense of the resurrection. I'm not going to go through all these, but every single disciple, except for John, who went to the island of Patmos and died an old man, was killed in a horrible way for this truth that Jesus raised from the dead. And you think at some point, one of them would have said, hold on, uh, this ain't worth it. But they didn't. I mean, Andrew was crucified, Bartholomew beaten, then crucified, James stoned to death. James, I am reading them to you, beheaded, Judas stoned to death, Matthew speared to death, Peter crucified upside down, Philip crucified, Simon crucified, Thomas speared to death, Matthias stoned to death. Who does that for a lie, for a hoax, for a practical joke? No one. And then, last and finally, because Jesus said he would raise from the dead. He called it. I mean, it's, it's the batter at the, at the plate pointing to the fence. He called it. And it happened. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then our message is fraudulent. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then our faith is futile. This is the end of verse 14 and the first of verse 17 here in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. And he says it again in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's in vain. It's futile. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, our faith is worthless. 
If Christ has not been raised, then all that we live for and hope for is in vain. What are we doing giving our money, time, energy to all this stuff, all this work? I mean, you know, the, the, the 10 plus percent that, that, that we give in, in, in tithes to this church and then to other ministries organizations. I'm telling you, there are a lot of things I could do with that money. There are a lot of things that my wife would love to have with that money. I'm using her because she's not in here today. It would probably be spent on me. But let's pretend. I'm a person. I'm a human being. I'm selfish. I have flesh. I like stuff. I like technology. I like toys. I would love to spend that money on that. If this isn't true, then what in the world am I doing? This, this time, I mean, I've got some, what hair that I still have, I've got a lot of, I've got some gray coming in. And a lot of these grays point back to ministry. I'm just going to be honest. I don't need that stress. I don't need that in my life if this isn't true. What a waste. And, and that's what the world thinks. It, it makes sense if one does not believe in the resurrection. They're looking at us going, you're idiots. You're fools. And if you don't believe in the resurrection, I have to agree. They're right. If this did not happen, our faith what we hope for, what we live for, what we give our time and money and energy to is absolutely a waste. But if it is true, then it's worth everything. If Christ has not been raised, then Easter truly is fool's day. Are we fools? We are not fools. Number three. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then our religion is feeble. It's weak. And, and do you know that a world without Easter is becoming a reality? I came across some other articles. Last year, National Trust, uh, it's a British organization for the promotion and preservation of historic sites in England. National Trust, along with the Cadbury Chocolate Company, who every year annually put on this huge Easter egg hunt. Actually, it's multiple Easter egg hunts around Great Britain. They decided to erase the word Easter from the event's name, opting to call it Cadbury's Great British Egg Hunt. Just completely erasing Easter from it. Cadbury said in a statement that it wanted to appeal to non-Christians, saying, we invite people from all faiths and none to enjoy our seasonal treats. Listen, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, eat chocolate. That's awesome. That's great. But how in the world do you celebrate Easter if you don't believe in the resurrection? And yet that's what the world is touting here. That's what Satan is trying to do in our culture. Let's remove that component I mean, the reason it exists. But let's take that out of the picture and let's just celebrate bunnies and chocolate and eggs, which I love all of those things. Our kids did a little Easter egg hunt yesterday. I like chocolate, kind of. Chocolate and peanut butter together, I love that. Bunnies are cute, right? Brad's has some in the store and you walk in and there's all these little white bunnies just jumping around and they're really cute. What in the world are we doing if... Jesus didn't raise. Another article that I read last year, right before Easter came out, it was by NBC News, and they ran an article that said, according to the National Retail Federation's annual Easter survey, I didn't even know there was one of those things, 
Americans will spend, now this is the projection last year for Easter. Americans will spend 18.4 billion with a B dollars at Easter. This year, I went back and looked just to check it out. It was down to only $18.2 billion. That was retail. That wasn't what people gave to their churches and to ministries and to missions organizations at Easter. That's what they gave to stores for stuff. The end paragraph said, Sour Patch Kids are great, but Sour Patch Bunnies are better. I'll just take their word for it. You can buy a box at Target for just a dollar. Also, now here's a deal. I don't have the link to this. I should have put it up on the screen. Easter shopping or not, you should probably know that a new line of Sour Patch Kids dropped this year. Woo! It's called Sour Patch Kids Tropical. And a bag of 12 goes for $24.77 on Amazon. That's the news at Easter. There's new Sour Patch Kids. They're tropical this year. Now, now listen, these people are doing their job, working hard, and, and I don't want to make fun of them in any way. But that's the storyline at Easter. And, and, and we as Americans, just in America, $18.4 billion on stuff that probably had nothing to do with the resurrection of Christ or advancing the gospel, what Easter is all about. Now, I don't want to sound like a sourpuss up here. Like I said, I'm... I'm I'm good with all those things, but let's not get the main thing out of the picture. Let's not get confused what Easter is all about. Because if Christ has not been raised, we are still in our sins. That's a quote from God's word. There's no remission. There's no forgiveness. There's no heaven. There's no eternity of bliss with God in his presence We are still in our sins. We are still guilty. And we are still destined for hell if there even is an afterlife. If Christ has not been raised, then Christians are the most pitiful people on earth. I really tried to work this in and I couldn't get a good storyline for this. I'm just gonna put it out there and you can take it for what it is. But when I hear that verse, all I can think of is Mr. T. I pity the fool. Who loved the A-team? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I pity the fool. I pity the fool. If we believe this and if it, it isn't real, oh, how pitiful we are, church, to buy into this nonsense. But it's real. And so the thing is, we are not to be pitied. They are to be pitied. Our enemies are to be pitied. We shouldn't hate them. We shouldn't loathe them. We shouldn't want to curse them or get revenge. We should pity them. We should weep for them. We should feel sorry for them. And then we should seek to do something about their eternal plight without Christ and take the gospel, this message of Easter, to them. Fourth and last implication, if Jesus didn't raise, is this. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then our life is forfeit. Our message, and I just forget what the F word. See, I had all these good. See, this is why. Fraudulent, that's the word, fraudulent. Our message is fraudulent. Our faith is futile. Our religion is feeble. 
and our life is forfeit. Verse 18, listen to what Paul says here once again. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. You notice Paul likes that term fallen asleep. He used that earlier in 1 Corinthians 11 when he's talking about the Lord's Supper. Some of you have even fallen asleep because you've come to the table in an unworthy manner. He uses that for the word death because for Paul, the Christian, his physical death or her physical death is not final. They have merely fallen asleep and they will wake up in the blink of an eye in the presence of Christ because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. They fell asleep in this world, in, in, in this life, in this dimension, and they immediately woke up in God's presence, if we believe in the resurrection. But Paul says here that if, if the resurrection of true Christ has not been raised, then we who have fallen asleep have perished. That's eternal. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. That's right, but have eternal life. Now, is, is, is John, when he writes that, is he talking about physical death? That if you believe in Jesus, you'll never have a physical death. Well, obviously not, because John died. He's buried somewhere. At least his body is. He, he, that word perish is not talking about a physical death. There is a spiritual death that he is concerned about there and that he is speaking of. And those who have died, if Christ has not, or those who have fallen asleep, if Christ is not raised, they have spiritually died as well. Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then we won't raise from the dead. There is no heaven. There is no eternity because he doesn't come back. We, in the, one of the last songs we sang, praise the name of the Lord our God. The third stanza, the third verse talks about his return. And I was just thinking there. I didn't have this in my notes. But as, as we were seeing that, I thought, if he didn't raise, that doesn't happen. Because there's no Jesus to come back. To get us, to take us where he is also. We believe now that he's preparing a place for us and, and he's only there momentarily and that he will return to take us to be where he is also. But if he did not raise, we're waiting for nothing. We're waiting in vain. And there is no there to go to. There's no place that he has prepared for us. If Jesus didn't have victory over temporal and eternal death, then we either stay in the grave or we all go to hell because we are still in our sins and we all perish. But, and once again, and I know I'm gonna get a chuckle here, at least you're gonna go home saying, you know what our pastor said? That is a wonderful but. But Jesus is alive. He is alive. Our message isn't fake. Our faith isn't futile. Our, our religion isn't feeble. And our lives are not forefoot. Because he is alive. And therefore, if we trust in him, we will live also forever and ever. Our message isn't fraudulent. Rather, we know the way. We know the truth. And we know the life. Our faith isn't futile. Rather, it is a confident and sure hope that will carry us through this life and into heaven. 
Jesus is alive, so our religion isn't feeble. Rather, with it, the church is like a tree planted by still water, and and it will not be shaken. Since Jesus is alive, our life is not forfeit. Rather, because he lives, we will live with him into eternity. And he is only, as I said before, left momentarily to prepare a place for us. And since he has gone to do that, he will come again to take us to be where he is also. Because he is alive. And we will never again know the absence of his perfect and all-satisfying presence. But be warned. All who have yet to come to faith in Jesus and accept him as their Lord and Savior... For though his patience is long-suffering and his grace can cover all sin, yet there will come an end to his patience. And his invitation to salvation will be no more. Whether it be at your death or at his second coming, for all who have rejected Jesus by refusing to trust him, Matthew 13, 40 through 42 says this, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Don't tell me Jesus doesn't talk about hell. Nicholas Kristof said, I, I believe in the Sermon on the Mount. I believe in Jesus' teachings, but I don't believe in all that other stuff. I, I wonder if he really means that because this is Jesus' teaching. Both come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That is his teaching, his glorious and wonderful and grace-filled teaching. And in the next breath he says, But many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart from me, for I never knew knew you, you doers of iniquity. And you will be separated and thrown into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because he lives, there is no excuse for us to reject him, to turn away from him, to refuse to trust him. Probably since man fell into sin, since Adam and Eve in the garden were separated from God and death entered the picture, man has been trying to elongate our lives apart from God. Some will remember decades ago, Yule Gibbons. I don't know if you remember that name or not. Yule Gibbons advocated a diverse plant diet. But Yule Gibbons, who lived by this diet strictly and said it would make you live over 100 years, died at the age of 64. Or what about nutritionist Adele Davis, who helped to wake millions of people to the dangers of refined foods? And if you just stay away from those, you'll live a long, healthy life. Adele died at age 70. It's respectable, but it's average. Nathan Pritigan one of the most foremost champions of elongating life through low-fat diets, died at the age of 69. He didn't even make it as long as Adele did. 69, the same age that Dr. Robert Atkins, who believed in the opposite diet regimen, a high-fat diet, just no carbs, of course, died at the age of 69 as well. 
probably the most interesting story I came across of these longevity of life gurus. And I've got a big old quotation marks around that word in my notes here. Probably the most interesting story I came across is Jerome Rodell. Jerome Rodell is the founder of the publishing empire dedicated to health. In 1971, Dick Cavett, who remembers the Dick Cavett show? I don't raise my hand. I've seen replays of it, but I never actually watched it. But in 1971, Dick Cavett invited Mr. Rodell to be on his show after reading a New York Times magazine article that called him the guru of the organic food cult. Don't miss this. Mr. Rodell, then age 72, took his chair next to Mr. Cavett to begin the interview. And he proclaimed that he would live to be 100. And then within just a few seconds, I kid you not, he made a snoring sound and died right there on stage. Now, you won't find this out there because they didn't air, for obvious reasons, the taping of the show. I'll live to be 100. I mean... Is there anything more ironic than that? I, I, I shouldn't laugh because I don't know about his eternal soul. But, but we want to talk about Fool's Day. That is foolish. To think we can do one single thing to elongate our life apart from God. And I'm just talking about in this life. What about eternity? Is there anything that we can do? And the answer is, of course, not. Not apart from Christ. Because he alone has power over Death. He alone raised from the dead on his own power. And so, my friends, I trust in his power alone because only in Christ, our living Savior, might we also live forever. As Greg comes this morning, I invite you to this hope. I invite you to this faith. I invite you to this truth that our Savior lives. As you've probably heard other pastors, speakers say, you know, Muhammad is in a tomb or grave. Buddha is in a tomb or grave. Jesus lives And he sits at the Father's right hand. And he intercedes for us day and night. He is a living Savior who loves us and who prays for us every day. Isn't that cool to know that Jesus right now, because he's alive, he's praying for you? He's praying for you, probably by name, because he can do that with the seven over seven billion people in the world. He can pray for every single one of us by name. Because not only does he know your name, he knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows everything about you. And so his prayers are well-informed, you might say. He knows how to pray for you, and he is doing it right now, day and night. It says he lives to intercede for you. He lives to intercede for you. I love that in Hebrews. Day and night, he lives. He lives. He lives to intercede for you, to love you, to offer you his very best. And he's calling you, my friend, right now. He's inviting you to come and receive all that he wants to give to you through faith in him. There's no other way. You can't deny him as Savior. You can't refuse him as Lord. You can't say he didn't raise. There's no other option but to trust in this Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture, who died, who rose again, and who now lives to offer you salvation. 
Don't reject it. While he is still long-suffering, while he's still inviting, respond today to that invitation.